Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Henson's Primary Care Podcast. Don't be trapped on contracts in primary care. I'm Rob McCartney, I'm an associate in the primary care team and I'm joined by my colleague Kirsty O'Dell, a fellow associate uh, in the same team. Uh, today we're going to be discussing the key things to look out for when you're looking at a contract and particularly where you might uh, find that you get yourself trapped if you not aware of the risks associated uh, with particular clauses. With that, we'll go straight into it. I, I just want to start with why are contracts needed in the first place? I mean, we've gone through a period in primary care where there certainly used to be a kind of dynamic of a gentleman's handshake type of agreement, but that is no longer really viable and hasn't been for a little while. Uh, we need to have increasing formalities. Kirsty, from your perspective, what type of issues are we seeing where it says, you know, that highlights why contracting is so important in primary care? I, I think it's just key really just to make sure you've got certainty in, in what you're you're doing and what contracts you're entering into. Um, it can also help with avoiding disputes so it's really clear again on, on what you're doing and it just avoids any any ambiguity I mean, that's a good point about avoiding disputes. And I think in the context of primary care, it's particularly important because many organisations uh, are, are partnership led. Um, as a partner, you're individually responsible for the terms, conditions that you enter into um, and can have kind of personal liability. It's not so important, but actually still very, very important when it's uh, a company. Um, uh, but as an individual, it's potentially your house is on the line in the worst case scenario. If you enter a contract that isn't appropriate um, and can't be delivered. On a more positive side of contracts in the NHS, they do give entitlements that are very beneficial. Um, entitlement to NHS pensions, entitlement to some indemnity provisions such as the NHS clinical negligence schemes and the ability to use NHS branding. With that in mind, we want to look at some of the kind of key traps that are out there. Uh, so when you are negotiating a contract or even if you're in a contract that needs reviewing, what are those kind of key areas that need to be considered? The first one, which I'd like to get your views on, uh, Kirsty, is the risk of entering into a contract inadvertently. Yeah, of course. And, and surprisingly, it is quite easy to, to enter into contracts, possibly without even knowing that, that you are doing. Um, there's just some key factors that form a contract. So, so firstly, an offer, moving on to acceptance, consideration, and then finally, an intention to create legal relations. So if those four elements are ever present, then you have created a, a contract. And once you've created that contract, um, you're, you're legally bound by it and you're committed to provide whatever it is that you've agreed to provide. So maybe a useful example might be um, submitting a tender bid. So by doing that, you're agreeing to provide whatever it is that, that the, the tender's for at whatever level and rates and things that you put in your bid. And once that bid has been, you know, you've been the chosen bidder, you are then obliged to, to carry out and fulfil the duties that, that you've agreed to do. So, so bearing that in mind, how uh, what steps can you take to kind of limit the risk that 
kind of uh, let's say you're in discussions with a commissioner and they're saying we really want this exciting new service um and you're saying yes we can do that but it's too early to truly commit what can steps can you take to kind of make certain you haven't accidentally going beyond the line say yes we are committed and they're holding you to it yeah i think the first thing is just don't rush in you know take it slow um and give yourself time to actually negotiate and, and to think about what it is that, that you're doing and, and what you can deliver so any discussions and communications with with them you make subject to contract so put that in your email correspondence and, and make it clear that you're not actually agreeing to anything yet you're not ready to, to commit and to be bound yet and that everything remains subject to contract until you're happy uh, and just be clear that you understand what the requirements are so ask questions if, if you need to get clarifications um, and, and just be be fully clear of what it is that you're entering into and what you're happy to, to deliver. Excellent thank you. So the second trap we want to consider is the role of custom and practice. So when you're running a service and you're, you've actually got a contract that's up and running you should be tied by the terms conditions uh, that are actually within it but there's a risk that those might vary over time. Um, do you want to expand on that for us please? Yeah, so they might vary by customer and practice, and, and by that we're talking about patterns of behaviour um, that become accepted. So it might be a supplier agreement to do something within a certain time frame that you've agreed under the contract, and then by custom and practice you're you're changing that time frame and, and delivering a little later. Um, and, and that might be the accepted position, which then becomes a variation to the contract. So it could be really subtle changes over time it could be applying um, procedures and policies and things in an inconsistent manner so one example there might be your partnership agreements um, there'll be a process for example of when a partner retires and you might not follow the process in the in the partnership agreement you might have another way of, of dealing with it and if you do that consistently for, for a number of partners that, that are leaving that then could become the, the new agreed custom and practice and the new agreed arrangement with that partner. So if you found that you've, you've done a review, let's say, of your contract and in this scenario, uh, a, you know, partnership deed, and you say, oh, actually, I don't think we work like that anymore. Um, what should you do to try and kind of rectify it? Yeah, so that, that's a variation. So if it doesn't match what you actually do in practice, then, then you want to want to rectify that and make sure that you do have an agreement that reflects what, what you actually do day to day. Um, so we'd suggest a variation um, in writing is, is what we'd always recommend so that it's, it's really clear what, what you've agreed. So that could be I could say, a variation, whether it's a contract, which you partnership do, whatever form of contract it is. Um, and, and it's just an agreement between all of the parties to it that should really be signed by all of the parties to it, confirming that that term has changed or there's additional service being entered into, whatever the variation is, but that that's properly documented and reflected. Great, thank you. So the third trap that we've been considering is uh, occurs when there's a conflict either kind of between contracts or within contracts. Now, we see this fairly frequently as people who draft contracts, but if you're somebody who reads them uh, as a more of a kind of operational perspective, it might be easy to kind of slip by. Um, how does this uh, type of trap occur and what does it look like? 
Yeah, so you often see it, I think, where you've got um, agreements with with complicated schedules and things attached to them um, or, or contracts that, that are overlapping uh, and where you, you use poorly or, or undefined terms. So it, it seems one example might be where you've got an agreement that refers to another agreement, like, for example, a data sharing agreement. Um, and whether two just don't marry up because they've been drafted as completely separate standalone documents, so they might refer to different different terms, um, and they might just contradict each other. You know, you can have one thing, one document saying one thing, and, and the other saying something completely different. That's where we see it often. It's not uncommon to see this in very complex kind of long contracts that might have had multiple parties of input. Uh, I've certainly seen. Um, where you've got kind of complex uh, service schedules, uh, service specifications, um, which actually purport to add additional clauses. I think when you're looking at the NHS standard contract, which is a two to three hundred word document and split into three different categories, and then on top of that you've got a 50 page specification, um, you can often find they don't marry up. Um, and, it, and it is complex. From a real practical perspective, um, we were discussing the importance of actually having more than one pair of eyes looking at this at any one time. Mm. Certainly, that's how we would operate. Yeah, definitely. I think when you start reading a contract you, and you've read it so many times because you're the one that, that's been drafting it and negotiating it, you read what you want to see rather than what's necessarily on the page. So, so yeah, always get a second pair of eyes um, or third or fourth or however many. Um, to have a look at it. Also, just be careful that you're, you're identifying your cross-references in the document, um, that you, your definitions and things, that they all make sense, and just generally understand the context of what the document's for and, and what it's seeking to achieve and whether it actually does it consistently. Great. So one of the areas where that type of conflict can occur is particularly in subcontracting. Um, so kind of the fourth trap we were considering is where there are gaps in subcontracting where they don't actually marry up as well as we'd like to. Could you give an example of where we've seen that kind of recently? Yeah, so we see that quite frequently with regards to PCN standard subcontracts. Um, so normally services by PCNs are subcontracted in, in one or two ways. So it's, it's either where all of the services are passed through um, or it could be where just specific services or a single service is, is passed down and, and subcontracted um, and the gaps are where not all services are covered in those subcontracting arrangements and so it's then unclear as to who's delivering what service um, and what happens in the event of, of non-performance of, of that service that's been missed out. I, one of the great examples um, and kind of frequent discussion points we come up with is the role of the IIF in the PCN um, uh, DES. Um, the novel thing about the IIF is the PCN as a group is responsible for the outcomes and the funding goes to the PCN as a whole, but individual elements of it are the responsibility of practices. Um, so there's a question there as to whether or not you subcontract the whole of the IIF in as part of the uh, the overall PCN subcontract, or do you exclude it so the practices remain responsible for it, or do you create some sort of new relationship that clearly defines who does what? You might end up, and I've certainly seen this, where you subcontract to your PCN organisation or your federation, 
and then sub subcontract back to the practices to actually deliver some of it. Mm. Um, in those circumstances, it can get quite complicated. Are there any kind of practical steps that you'd recommend to kind of monitor and track these? Yeah, so I think the key thing is is creating a checklist of, of all the requirements from from the master contract. You can then tick them off and make sure that you've allocated every element of the service somewhere, whether it be through sub subcontracting arrangements or or otherwise. That you, you need to have a home for for every element of of the service and and don't miss any out. Um, and consider variations as well. So to the extent that you you haven't done that. Um, and you're thinking about your subcontract agreements now and, and wondering what's what's going on with that service that isn't included in them, um, try and vary those contracts now, enter into a written agreement to, to vary them so that they cover everything off. Okay, great. The fifth trap that we were considering is about unfair provisions in commercial contracts. There's a distinction here between commercial and, you know, consumer contracts. Um, very briefly, do you want to summarise that? Yeah of course so consumer contracts are are us so that's when we go to the supermarket and we enter into a contract by buying some groceries as as an example and and obviously as a consumer you you have a different level of bargaining power than than the businessman or woman that you're dealing with and so there's extra protections in place for you as a consumer Um, and, and that doesn't apply in relation to business to business contracts because it, it sees you more of, of an equal bargaining power but for Robert that's not always the case is it I mean there's still inequality in bargaining power in commercial relationships um, and, and how would the practices go about mitigating that? Yeah that's particularly evident when you're dealing with commissioners of public services so you're dealing with the NHS and your local ICS and I- ICB I should add um, they are huge organisations that have all the power in these um, negotiations. So consequently, you may find that your ability to negotiate is very limited. A lot of negotiation on these terms conditions is done at a very high level. And we do know, for example, with the DES contracts um, recently, that they have largely been imposed over the last two years because negotiations have not been successful. That leaves you in a position where you have a specialist practice level in these scenarios that you're limited to saying yes we will do it and we'll make it work use in whichever way we can or no we won't a very binary type position which isn't necessarily ideal for anybody having said that there are in those circumstances there are some very chances to vary locally there are opportunities to um try and refine the services and uh, get them working to the best of your ability. I think in most cases, um, the there's requirements, people have been able, and it's one of the, the strengths of primary care, uh, to be fairly uh, innovative in how they're implemented and how they are uh, structured, which overcomes some of that kind of disparity in the bargaining power. So in terms of trying to solve a, a situation where you find yourself in this uh, uh, unfair position. If you are directly negotiating, then there are opportunities to say, actually, we do need to hold you firmly to these uh, kind of clauses. Um, There are some protections relating to you can't be penalised unfairly under penalty clauses. And if you've entered into a contract, that's already includes these types of clauses. Negotiate them as part of a contract review. 
you, once you've got evidence in front of you that you can present to your uh, commissioner, you're in a far stronger position to say, actually, we do need to make a change and we can justify it for this reason or that reason. Um, it, the reality of it is you often have to make a commercial decision, whether it's a practice level, PCN level, federation level, com company level, uh, depending on who you are and what you do. You as a board or as a partnership, need to make a an informed decision as will we accept these terms um, and the only way you can do that is if you properly understand them understands the risks associated with them and have a plan to try and manage them yeah, absolutely so the next track we thought about was around unclear termination provisions so the idea being what happens in either workplace scenario or, or an exit situation and, and how that's dealt with I mean, when would a trap occur in, in this situation? Um, some of the most common ones are where there's a, a very long uh, contract period, which doesn't have any break clauses. So if there's, if there's a fundamental change in the way that services are to be delivered uh, and they no longer becomes viable, you can't get out of your contract. Um, you often see this in contracts such as uh, maintenance contracts for photocopiers or uh, telephone systems. Um, they're often very hard to get out of and they're long term contracts. You also get scenarios where contracts may not have um, a clear uh, mechanism for renewal. Uh, and that might end up in a situation which I have certainly seen uh, where there's a one side renewal. So commissioner only renewal that says you have to keep running this service because we say so, even if you don't actually feel like you need, you know, it's suitable anymore. Um, that's particularly important if there's no break clause. All of, in the, all of these scenarios, you need to uh, rectify it as quickly as possible. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, is there anything else that you'd recommend for practices to consider to avoid this trap of unclear termination provisions? So if you're uh, at the negotiation stage still, make certain you look at the contract term. How long is it? Is it for a fixed period? Is it a variable period? What, can it be extended? Are there break clauses? Um, are they uh, in a reasonable period that is likely to reflect the nature of the business? Um, will there be additional conditions to how and when you implement them? I mean, I recall many of the uh, APMS contracts from a few years ago uh, were five year contracts without necessarily extensions. The problem with some of those contracts is you spent three years setting up a service, one year getting it working how they wanted it working. And then the next thing you know, it's out for procurement. So there's a quite a kind of degree of instability on some of those smaller contracts, which led to increasingly kind of 10 year contracts with uh, agreed kind of break periods. But that's something to look for to. If you've already entered into a contract, then again, it goes back to that point that we've said before, have open discussions, communications with commissioners and seek variation where you can. Definitely. Um, something else that I think is, is potential trap is around insufficient payment provisions. So when it's, it's not necessarily clear on on what the payment structure is and um, whether you're going to get paid enough and, and what happens in, in the future if it is a slightly longer term contract. Um, so what, what should people be looking out for in, in those types of situations? I think the uh, key here is make sure you undertake appropriate financial uh, planning when you're considering any contract, um, assess whether or not the proposed funding covers any overheads 
And most importantly, does the mechanism actually account for inflation increases, pay rises, uh, you know, costs of your materials to deliver service, rental increases, all these key elements that may increase over, say, a five year term of a contract or even a three year. Um, is there a mechanism that actually factors this in? Because if not, you could find that a profitable contract becomes a very kind of uh, break even type contract becomes a losing contract. And often it takes very little in the NHS um, for that to flip from one to the other. Um, so good cash flow and payment uh, uh, plans is, is a key part of that with your financial budgeting. Yeah, definitely. Um, I think something else that's probably a bit more of a buzz these days is around the, the NHS pension scheme and whether or not um, particularly PCNs, for example, would have access to the NHS pension scheme or just generally how you ensure that, that staff maintain that access. I mean, it, it's it's quite tightly controlled, isn't it, the NHS pension scheme and how, therefore, do, do we ensure that, that those staff get, get that access? It is very tightly controlled because it's such a good scheme, you know, competitively, it's that nobody else can really match it. Um, you know, there are pros and cons to it. There always are. But certainly if you just look at it in terms of what you get out of what you put in, um, it's incredibly beneficial um, uh, in the grand scheme of things. So as a consequence, it's very tightly controlled. So the, the people who are eligible um, have to really prove not only are they eligible, but that the organisations who uh, employ them are eligible themselves. Uh, it's a fairly easy one to test, though. Uh, the eligibility basically relies on a small number of contracts, either primary care contracts, so GMS, PMS, APMS, or any of the uh, kind of main NHS standard contracts, which are the, the main master NHS standard contract, the standard subcontract, or the new subcontract, which is specifically for PCN um, uh, networks, uh, which is actually called the NHS subcontract for the provision of services related to the network contract DES. I know nice and, uh, and, and easy to remember. Um, the, um, the thing about that one, though, is it was purposely designed so that practices could subcontract their services, particularly enhanced access in October 2022 um, to other providers, whether it's federations or if it was um, if they've set up their own PCN uh, incorporated vehicle. However, NHS BSA that controls NHS pension changed the criteria uh, in April that basically said if you want to have pension access and your federation or a, a, a PCN company um, employing people on behalf of PCNs you have to have one of these subcontracts in place um, and that was, a, that was a significant change because a lot of places didn't have that they just did it on the fact that we've got a network agreement we're therefore eligible they can have their pension so by having this uh, particular type of subcontract in place, it ensures that they can continue to offer pensions to their staff and offer it in the future for, for future staff, which helps with recruitment. The test is therefore relatively easy, whether or not you're entitled to it. Is it one of these key contracts? Um, and the other part to consider is, does the contracting party have the right to give you that contract? So it's an NHS uh, uh, commissioner. Um, is it a, a GP practice specifically underneath that? It shouldn't be a problem. However, if you're negotiating a subcontract with uh, uh, some NHS trust, with a provider of, say, a GP federation provider of services, it's unlikely that you're going to be able to get access to it. 
Um, so it's definitely worth um, checking. Absolutely. And it's quite easy to contact, I think, the BSA, isn't it, to sort of run those those questions by them and, and make contact with them. So you, you can test it um, in that way as well to make sure that you know whether or not what your arrangements are will be covered under the scheme or not. Yes, the team at the NHS BSA is very helpful. Uh, they do respond to queries fairly quickly um, and it's really uh, a very useful resource. Uh, but you have to be realistic that they are very busy, so it may take a little while before you get a response. Another kind of NHS organisation which is worth contacting if you have queries links in with our next trap, and that's NHS Resolution. The next trap that we kind of identified is also linked to one of the benefits is the Clinical Negligence Scheme for GPs. Now, this scheme was set up originally for primary care and primary care services. Um, but there's a risk that the contracts that are coming out increasingly to PCNs are working at an integrated level uh, and may not automatically fall uh, within the CNS GP remit. This could create quite a significant risk if you're not careful, um, as it may mean that you don't have appropriate indemnity uh, cover in place. With that in mind, uh, we would recommend that uh, whenever a new service is being provided or sort of being discussed, uh, you kind of make certain that the commissioners have addressed this point of whether or not it is likely to be covered by one of the NHS resolution schemes. If not, you can uh, contact uh, insurance brokers and obtain uh, uh, medical malpractice insurance. And many federations over the years have actually used medical malpractice insurance as a safety net, just in case anything kind of slips out of the, um, the remit of CNSGP. Right, so that was a whistle-stop tour from kind of the main uh, traps that we've identified. I think it's fair to say we did have a longer list uh, that we had to try and whittle down. So if anybody wants uh, to learn more, please reach out to us. We're always happy to discuss it. Um, I think as a closing comment, I just want to uh, reiterate um, the, the importance of ensuring that you do have um, appropriate um, support from contracting perspective. It's one thing uh, we would obviously say this, uh, you know, to instruct lawyers to help you with uh, uh, ensuring that your contracts are appropriate, are, are well drafted and, and work suitable. But there's just that that cover point that we said about get extra support where you can ask other people to read the documentation. Don't let it be all or nothing on one person within your team. Um, it can be a kind of shared obligation. Um, Kirsty, any kind of closing thoughts? Uh, no, I think you said it all really. I think the key is just to, to make sure that you you read things carefully, um, you are clear on what it is that you're, you're meant to be contracting for, um, and that it covers everything you're expecting it to, and just making sure that, that yeah, those expectations are in line with, with what the contractual documentation says. And ideally, always have contractual documentation, so get things in writing where you can. Um, and if you need to vary any existing contracts that you've got in place, then, then do that sooner rather than later and, and start those conversations and, and that engagement. Excellent. Thank you very much. Well, uh, hopefully you found that useful. Please reach out if you'd like to um, discuss any other topics we've covered or indeed if there's any other topics you would like us to uh, cover. Um, we as a firm can discuss multiple different areas and we're always interested to know what interests you. OK, we look forward to um, having your responses. Bye. Thank you for listening.